Good morning. My name is Chad. I am the senior pastor at Sovereign Grace. We're glad you're here with us this morning. I suppose I should start by saying Happy Mother's Day. Today is the Lord's Day, and I guess in God's providence, we live in a culture that has chosen to give thanks for the reality of mothers. And I suppose in the context of our culture, we ought to be more thankful for our recognition of that reality than we ever have been before. And it's appropriate that we do that on the Lord's Day as the Lord is the one who gave us the gift of moms. So we thank God for them. With that said, turn with me in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we're going to look at verse 33. We'll begin that section. We've been working through Psalm 119. As most of you know, we've been working through this psalm in its sections. It's actually a psalm that's divided up in little eight-verse chunks. And those eight-verse chunks are all arranged around the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight-verse chunk is Aleph and then bait, and then gimel, and dalit, and now we're on hay. It's actually a guttural, but I'm not going to attempt to say it with a guttural. It's hay. We'll just say it that way. Starting at verse 33. So Psalm 119, it probably looks like he, like the English pronoun he to you, but it's, it's hay. And with a little bit of guttural in there, if you can do it. So verse 33, we're going to read Psalm 119, verse 33 through 40, and then pray. So look with me there, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your spirit has superintended this word at the hand of the psalmist for your church in every age. We give thanks that you and you alone are the teacher that we need. We pray that you would teach us that you would work through your word this morning, applying it to our hearts and minds, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would be made more like your Son with ever-increasing glory, knowing this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A controversy arose in the late 4th through 5th century A.D. or A.C.E. It arose as an English bishop named Pelagius reacted to the prayer of another bishop, a man we now call St. Augustine. Augustine had written in his confessions a prayer, and he prayed this, Give what you command, and command what you will. Now Pelagius was happy with the portion of the prayer that said, Command what you will. Yes, the Lord should command what he wills. But he objected to the part of the prayer that said, Give what you command. Pelagius objected, saying this, that this notion that is inherent in Augustine's prayer when he says, give what you command, is the notion that we are unable to do what God commands apart from God's grace. And Pelagius objected to that notion, saying, if the Lord commands it, we must in fact be able to do it. So why pray for him to give it to us? Augustine believed, however, that we were unable to keep God's commandments unless God graciously worked in us. He believed that if God commanded something, God must also give us the grace to keep it because we're fallen, sinful human beings. 
And Augustine and Pelagius had this battle, and Augustine prevailed, thankfully, as he was being much more consistent with God's word. Augustine is right. We lack the ability to keep God's law. We lack it. Not only lack the ability to keep God's law, but the very commandment when it comes often arouses sin in us. Because we're so bent towards sin as a result of the fall, that when a commandment comes, we often want to rebel. You all know it's true, because when it says, don't touch... The first thing you want to do is touch. There's something in you that says, I want to touch that. And David, our psalmist, understood this. It's why we read what we read in our psalm today. So as we walk through Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, as we walk through this section, I want you to see two primary truths. First, I want you to see that David assumes we need God's grace to keep God's law. He just assumes that in the way he prays. This psalm is a prayer like they all are, or a prayer in the form of a song that the church would sing. And as David is praying and or singing, David is assuming that we need God's grace to keep God's law. And second thing I want you to see is that David trusts the Lord to give him the grace that he needs to keep the law. That's it. That's all we want to look at today. David assumes he needs God's grace to keep the law, and David trusts that the Lord will give him such grace so that he might keep the law. So let's look first at David's assumption that we need God's grace to keep the law. I want you to look at the verbs that begin every line of this portion of Scripture, except for the last line, it's at the end of it. But I want to look at the verbs, and note as we look at the verbs, the utter dependence upon God's gracious work in every line. I'll just walk through them quickly, and then we'll go through them more slowly. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord. Look at verse 34. Give me understanding. Verse 35. Lead me in the path. Verse 36. Incline my heart, verse 37. Turn my eyes from, verse 38. Confirm to your servant, verse 39. Turn away the reproach, verse 40 at the end. In your righteousness, give me life. You hear the assumption of the psalmist? His assumption is that we do need God to work in us or we will not keep his law. We just won't. Look at verse 33. Let's slow down a bit. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. What he's saying here is that I need the Lord to teach me if I'm ever to persevere, if I'm going to walk with the Lord in the way of his law, then he has to teach me or I will go astray the first opportunity I get to go astray. So teach me. I need the Lord to teach me. David wants to understand and obey God's law, and he knows he will not persevere without God himself teaching him the law internally. He knows that if he's left to himself, he'll wander from the way. A man named Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval teacher, monk, priest, whom the reformers quote from often, says this, he that is his own teacher has a fool for his master. The fool is the man who is self-taught. The wise man is taught by the Lord. I want you to think about that for a minute. Reading the Bible will not make you well taught. Hearing my sermons, hearing the sermons preached by the greatest preachers given to the church will not in and of themselves make you well taught. You are only well taught when the Lord teaches you, when he works in your heart and mind so you know him and love him and his word. We see this need in the history of Israel. Israel had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel had the covenants, the promises. 
given to Abraham and Moses and David. They had the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Abraham also called the prophet, Moses. They had the law. They had the tabernacle where God dwelled. They had the priests. Yet, in spite of having all of those gifts of God, they were stubborn in mind and in heart. They needed to be taught by the Lord Himself. And the Lord promised a new covenant, a day in which they would be taught by Him. In fact, while they're in exile, He mentions this. Look at Isaiah chapter 54. You can keep your hand in Psalm 119, but look at Isaiah 54. Israel is in exile under Babylonian oppression, and we get the prophet Isaiah who comes and speaks to them. When I say Israel here, I mean Israel comprehensively, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But if you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel is carried into captivity a hundred years earlier, nearly a century earlier, by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom of Judah has also been carried into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And in the midst of that, Isaiah comes and preaches. He preaches before this Babylonian captivity and into part of their captivity. And in Isaiah 54, if you go down to verse 13, he says this to Israel, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That's a fascinating promise. It's not as if the Lord hasn't already given them His Word and sent them prophets. What's He getting at? What He's saying is, is that you're stubborn of heart because though I delivered the Word to you through prophets, though I inscripturated the Word for you, I even wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone and put them in the Ark of the Covenant for you, though all that was true, many of you continued in disbelief because... The Lord Himself has not taught you, but the Lord Himself will teach your children. The generation to come. This is a nod to what we call the New Covenant. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, in fact, the Lord comes in the flesh, incarnate, and walks among us, and teaches us, and performs miracles. And yet, even when the Lord of glory, standing incarnate before them, was present, they still needed the Lord to teach them internally. Or they would fail to discern the truth. Look at John chapter 6. This passage that we just read in Isaiah 54 is picked up in John chapter 6. So I want to look there with you. John chapter 6. You guys likely remember the scene. Jesus has fed the 5,000 and walked on water. And the crowd is following him around. And Jesus says basically they're following him around because they want some more food. So there's something they would like from him. And then he teaches this difficult teaching. And this difficult teaching is, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was shocking on a number of levels to them. And they begin to reject him, and he actually speaks into why they're rejecting him. And his reason is, unless the Father draws you, you can't come to me. And what he's getting at is, unless the Father himself teaches you internally who I am, you can look right at me and not know who I am, not discern the truth from the air. So he says, if you look down at John 6, 44, no one, universal negative, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice verse 45. It is written in the prophets, namely Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See, Jesus is the one who has seen the Father, and the Father is the one who draws you to the Son. So the Son, we learn in Matthew 11, for example, in that passage, the Son reveals to you the Father, and the Father helps you to understand who the Son is. And this is what he's driving at. You need to be taught by the Lord himself. It's not enough that I teach you externally, that I hold up the text of Scripture and I say, here's what it says. The Lord himself must take that word and drive it into your heart and mind. You have to be given ears to hear and eyes to see. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. And the point there when it says by the word of Christ isn't the word about Christ, but it's the word that Christ himself speaks into your hearts and minds by the Spirit when he gives you the gift of faith. We need the Lord himself to be our teacher. We cannot come to Christ apart from the Father drawing us and teaching us. That's why in Psalm 119.33, he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end when you teach me. When you teach me, I'll keep it. I'll persevere. Now look what he says in Psalm 119.34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. David's point here is not that he's unable to have an intellectual understanding of the law. You can understand God's word intellectually without the working of the Holy Spirit. It's a book. It's a historical book. It has vocabulary that humans use. It was written in Hebrew and Old Testament and Greek and the New Testament. But it has Hebrew and or Greek sentence structure and syntax. And we can walk through the book as a human book and understand what it's saying. That's not what he's talking about. He says, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. His point is that he needs the Lord to transform his heart and mind so that he loves the law. We know that because he says that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. See, our hearts are naturally opposed to God's law. That's our natural state. We are naturally opposed to God's law. We need him to transform us by the Spirit or we'll always be opposed to the Lord and his word. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 7. Just hear this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For indeed, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, don't misunderstand the nature of the word hostile here. It's hostile to God. Hostile is not just a reference to people who show some kind of visible hatred for the Lord. It's an internal hatred. People might even say they love the Lord. I love God. But I only love him on my terms, not on his terms. They don't submit their hearts and minds to God's law. They're ignorant of what the law is teaching them about their own need for salvation. Listen to the religious zeal, for example, of Paul's own audience, his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews for whom Paul says, I would give my life for them to be saved. Listen to what he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're zealous for God. They speak as those who love God. But notice what he says. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's what he's getting at. They errantly, wrongly believed that they could keep God's law in such a way that they would establish their own righteousness before God and God would say, come on in. Your good works outweigh your bad works to such a great degree 
that you're welcome in my kingdom. Come on in. And he says that was an arrogant, errant understanding. They sought to establish their own righteousness rather than trusting in the righteousness that comes from God. What's he talking about? The righteousness that comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They didn't trust the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't look to him. They didn't look to him. And he's saying God has given us righteousness in Christ. We receive it by faith and trusting in him. You can be zealous for God all day long. You can say you love him. But if you don't submit to his word and trust what he says, then your love is hostility, actually. It's hostility. Imagine if I said I love my wife and then I defined her as an entirely different person than she is. I love her as long as she's this other person that she's not. You all would think that's insane. Well, that's what people do with God all the time. I love him as long as I get him on my terms, my way. They are fools who know not their need for the grace of God in Christ and by the Spirit. Look at verse 35, Psalm 119, verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The King James Version is a little more forceful and helpful here. It says, make me walk. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. We need the Lord to lead us not only in understanding the deep things of God, but perhaps even more particularly in simple daily obedience, in godly wisdom. Listen, I could give a lecture on the Trinity. It wouldn't be the best lecture you received on the Trinity. We did hire a guy for the Radio Theological Institute who would probably give the best lecture you'll receive on the Trinity. In fact, I'm quite confident he would give the best lecture you'll ever hear on the Trinity. And yet, in spite of how intellectually sophisticated and well-argued and on the nose his explanation of Trinity would be, knowing that information is not the biggest challenge you have. The biggest challenge you have is simple, daily obedience to the Lord. I can have all kinds of intellectual knowledge and be entirely disobedient to the Lord. Our learning can quickly outpace our wisdom. Do you know that? For most of us, we recognize the older we get, the more we realize how far our learning has outpaced our wisdom. We need the Lord to make us walk in the path of wisdom. Please hear that walking in the path of wisdom is a gift of God's grace. And though we might delight in the path of wisdom, it can be quite difficult to stay on the path. Listen to how Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about his own struggle with staying on this path. Romans 7 verse 21, he says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, notice what he wants, I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's what the psalmist is saying. I delight in God's law in my inner being. But I see in my members, in other words, his bodily members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, I keep finding myself doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. And that's what the psalmist is praying Lead me, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Lord, I will not be obedient on a daily basis. I will not continue to trust you and fear you if you don't make me walk down that path. I delight in your word all day long, but I'm not going to continue in it if you don't work in me graciously to cause me to continue. Verse 36 of Psalm 119, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. It's an interesting text. Incline my heart to your testimonies, to your word, and not to selfish gain, not to covetousness, 
not to wanting what's not mine. Our heart is naturally, as Luther said, curvatus in se, it's in Latin, curved in on ourselves. That's how we're born. We're born with our hearts curved in on ourselves. We want selfish gain. We have a list of things that we covet, that we want. Paul calls that kind of coveting idolatry. We want these things more than we want God. And he's saying, incline my heart to your testimonies rather than to that. Let me desire you and your promises and your word and not desire that other stuff I covet. We're all born sinners, fallen, spiritually rebellious, and we desire selfish gain. We're covetous, idolatrous, unbelieving, ungrateful, disobedient. We do not desire to learn the way of God's law. Listen to what Job says in chapter 21 and verse 14. They say to God, listen, this is what we say to God. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Again, you can come to a Bible class, a Bible study, a small group, a church service and say, I desire knowledge of his ways. And what you mean by that is I want to grow in my understanding of things intellectually. But do you desire knowledge of his ways such that you see where you need to repent and trust the Lord and walk in obedience and turn from selfish gain? That's the gift of God's grace to want any of that. We might think about our choices that we make as informed, if you will, both by inclination and volition. When you look there, incline my heart to your testimonies. Every time we make a choice, if you will, we are making a choice, if you will, our will is made up of inclination, what I desire, and volition, what I choose. And what he's saying is, I'm always going to choose the thing I love most. So change my inclinations, what I desire, what I'm bent toward, so that I choose rightly. Change what I love so that I make the right decisions. You know, we may legalistically want to use God's law to manipulate outcomes that we want. Like we look around and say, listen, that looks like a wiser path. That person's walking in God's law and they're getting a particular sort of outcome. But we don't want God for God's sake. We don't just want him. And we need our hearts to be inclined to God's testimony so that we choose them. That's also a promise of the new covenant, of God's grace. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. Again, Ezekiel speaking to the people about a new covenant day to come. And he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, that chasing after vain things of that greediness, if you will, all your idols from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's when the Lord, by his spirit, graciously gives us new life that we want to walk in his rules, that our hearts are inclined toward him. This is actually the passage Jesus is referencing in John 3 when he says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? A man must be born again if he wants to enter the kingdom of God. What's the new birth? It's the birth of the Holy Spirit in which he gives you new inclinations, new desires. Verse 37 of Psalm 119, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Worthless things here is those vain things. Think of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Even the things that we would think are good, 
In Ecclesiastes, we're told they're just vanity of chasing after the wind. I set my heart on gaining wealth and power. It was vanity chasing after the wind. I set my heart on having a good marriage and family. Vanity a chasing after the wind. What's he getting after there? Everything he mentions that we say in human relationship is good, he then comes in and says, chasing after that was vain. It was like chasing after the wind. If you think about the illustration, you'll get it. You chase after the wind, you are never going to catch it. You're wasting your time. And what he's saying there is, all that's vanity. When I considered the end of my days, I knew this, that all that matters is that I feared the Lord and kept his commandments. In other words, what he's driving after when he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways is not, I don't want to have a wife or kids or I don't want to do well in my business or I don't want to walk in wisdom throughout my life. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I don't want to do any of those things as an end to themselves. I want to know you. I need to know you. And if I lose all of that and have you, I've got gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 38. Let me say one thing about turning our eyes before I go to verse 38. You know, we're like children who are easily distracted, right? So even once he's turned our eyes to look at him, we kind of like have spiritual ADD. We're just all the time. Some of us joke, and you guys have heard this, right in the middle of looking to the Lord, it's like, squirrel, what just happened? And then off you go into some kind of sin. Worthless things catch our eyes. They blind us and they kill us. And we need the Lord to keep our eyes focused on him. I want to camp out there just for one more second about that blindness and killing of us. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to start in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul's talking about the preaching of the gospel and people not believing. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He goes on to say, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to catch what he's saying there. The minds of unbelievers have been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And how does that transform? We preach Christ and God, the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the God who spoke and said, light be and light was, That same God who did that miracle of creation is the God who speaks into your heart and says, understand, believe, and you do. See the truth, and you do. And he compares that transformation of your heart with the speaking into being of the creation. Think of that. That's why he'll go on in 2 Corinthians 5 and say, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed. The new things have come. We need the Lord to turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life in his ways. Verse 38 of Psalm 119 now. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. The Lord's made a promise to us. Notice the singular there, your promise. What's the promise? The promise that begins in Genesis 3.15. The promise that happens right at the fall after man rebels against God in sin. 
God's first word is a curse on the serpent, which is a word of grace to us. His very first word is a word of grace to us. It's remarkable. In the face of our sin, he promises salvation. This woman, her seed, will crush the head of the serpent. That's what he says. The seed of the woman's coming. Her seed will crush the head of the serpent. And we see the progressive unfolding of that promise throughout the Old Testament in the promise to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to Moses and Israel through Moses and to David. And on it goes until one day the promise comes, born of a virgin. And we hear Matthew say this kind of thing right at the beginning when he says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. The promise has come. He's here. Trust him. And David says what? Confirm to your servant your promise. Confirm it that you may be feared. It's interesting, isn't it? What does the fulfillment of the new covenant and the coming of the seed of the woman have to do with the fear of the Lord? Why does it cause us to fear him? Well, those who fear the Lord are those to whom the Lord looks. Remember Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look, the one who trembles at my word. They are those who trust God. Those who fear the Lord know that he is God, and they are not. Those who fear the Lord know that he is holy, and they are not. Those who fear the Lord know that his word is true, and their own is not. In other words, they can say with confidence, let God be true, and every man a liar. They know that he alone can save them, and that they look to him alone. And in the face of Israel's rebellion, the Lord promises to give them this by the grace of his new covenant. Listen to Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah chapter 32. I want you to hear this part of the new covenant promise. Listen to what he says in verse 37. Behold, I will gather them, that's his people, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. He's talking about their diaspora that happened under Nebuchadnezzar, etc. And he says, in my anger, my wrath, and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. Now listen, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, that's his gift by grace. Comes the new covenant. So we hear that the church in Acts were told they were of one way and one heart. And we're told that they walked in the fear of the Lord. Verse 39 of Psalm 119, turn away from me the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. You know, we've looked a lot in the last several weeks at David's appeal to the Lord to protect him from his enemies from their mocking and persecution, so I won't spend much time here. But we see once again that his concern is to walk in accord with God's word and his dependence is upon the Lord to do that, especially when he's in the midst of suffering and opposition. Especially because when suffering and opposition come, it's easy to lose your grip on the Lord. He's saying, help me. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. David longs for God's law. This, is, this longing for his law is the work of God's spirit. He knows he needs God to give him life. He has already been spiritually reborn, but he needs the Lord's work to continue, causing him to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. See, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness, yet we need the Lord to continually remind us of that and bring us more and more 
into the likeness of his son. So I walked through that whole text just to show you one continuous request. The one continuous request is this, Lord, be my teacher. I need you to teach me. I need you to teach me. I will utterly fail if I am self-taught. Whether I'm reading and studying on my own or whether I'm sitting under the best preachers on the planet, if you, Lord, do not teach me internally, all is lost. All is lost. I need you to teach me internally. I need your grace or I won't walk with you. I hope you see that overriding driving point that David's making with utter clarity. And that leads to our second point, and it's not going to be a very long one. David trusts the Lord to give him the grace that he needs to keep the law. How do you know that? Well, first of all, it ought to be obvious because he keeps asking the Lord for it. (laughs) David knew he needed God's grace, and so what does he do? He continually asks the Lord for it. He's actually using an imperatival form of the verb, teach me, give me, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm to your servant, turn away the reproach, in your righteousness, give me life. It's a form of a verb that in some places we would use as a command. Now he's not commanding the Lord. All he's doing is saying to the Lord, I trust you to give this to me because I believe that you'll keep your own promises. So essentially what I'm doing is saying, Keep your promises to me. I trust you to keep your promises to me. On what basis does he know that the Lord will keep his word? On what basis? How does David know the Lord will keep his promises to be gracious? Well, he knows God's three works, doesn't he? He knows what God has done in creation. And any God who's done that must be good for his word. In fact, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and the spirit hovered over the surface of the darkness, and God said, he spoke, light be, and it was. And God saw that it was good. He called it morning and evening, saw that it was good. Now, what I want to point out there is God spoke. David knows that God spoke the universe into existence, that God's word must be true because when he speaks, what he speaks forth happens. It comes to be. Light be, and it was. So I can trust him. In his providence, God provides for his creation consistently. You guys notice that? We all, as humans, have the same kinds of circulatory systems, and we all have lungs that breathe air the same way, and we all have hearts that beat and pump blood the same way, and we all have limbs that work in the same way. Now, surely there are corruptions to that because of the falls so of some people are handicapped or what have you, but pay attention there's a consistency to the way in which God sustains all of us. You know that when a woman gives birth, you're not going to be worried that you need to button down the window lest a bird fly out. You know that. There's a kind of consistency in how God creates and how God provides. Things work the way he's made them to work. And if that's true, then I can believe his word. We see it in redemption. God has consistently spoken of redeeming us from Genesis 3.15 all the way through to the Christ. We see it again and again. God has promised, we learn in Hebrews 6, and God is immutable, unchanging, and God cannot lie. And if he's promised, that's a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. We know that David had the promise of the Christ, our Savior, by faith. Hebrews 11, he had the substance of Christ by faith. He trusted in him and looked to him by faith. So he knew he could trust the Lord. He knew he could trust the Lord. Sovereign grace, Christ has come in fulfillment of God's promises. And we need the Lord himself to be our teacher. 
So I suppose what I want to exhort you to do is to continually pray for yourself and for one another that the Lord would teach you. Yes, open your Bibles because he's going to teach you through his word. Yes, sit under preaching because he's going to teach you through these means of the preached word. But you can open your Bibles and you can sit under the preached word. And unless the Lord himself teaches you, it all becomes vain words. Every word from my mouth falls to the ground unless the Lord himself teaches you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would teach us that we would be a people who continue to look to your son in faith, who were taught by the Lord from his word, who recognize our ongoing need for you to teach us and for you to teach those around us. May we not become impatient with our brothers and sisters in Christ or with ourselves, but trust you to teach us. Look to you to do the work. For those here, Father, who aren't looking to your Son in faith, who have not been born again, may you give them life. May they look to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.